5, 1 through 16. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountains, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are, they, are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall it, oh, sorry, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the very word of God. So we're in a series of sermons studying the Sermon on the Mount together in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Last week, we considered a bit the meaning of uh, the Beatitudes in those first 12 verses. This week, we turn our attention to the four verses that follow the Beatitudes, verses 13 to 16, but we're going to see that verses 13 and through 16 have to be read and understood and interpreted uh, with the Beatitudes firmly in mind. So we read them together again this morning. And what we find, though, in verses 13 through 16 are two uh, pretty memorable metaphors that Jesus gives here. I take them to be metaphors of the church metaphors of the people of God, and they are powerful metaphors, indicating what we as Christians, as we as members of his family, the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ, what we have to offer to the world. And what these metaphors teach us is that what we have to offer to the world is something that cannot be found anywhere else, something that cannot be attained anywhere else. It is the church of Jesus, is the people of God together as his family, as his church, that offer to the world something unique. Jesus is talking about here with these two metaphors. So uh, what do they mean? What do these metaphors mean? What makes them true? And then how do they have their effect? The meaning of the metaphors, the truthfulness of the metaphors, and then the effectiveness of these two metaphors. So first, what, what, what do the metaphors mean? You are the salt of the earth. You are 
the light of the world. Now, to take the first one, you are the salt of the earth. Most people take this metaphor to mean either that the church uh, has a seasoning effect on the world, makes the world a little tastier, more palatable, or often uh, people will point out that salt is a preservative, that it uh, keeps the world from completely crumbling and falling apart. So this is what tends to be the focus when many people think about what Jesus must mean when he uses the metaphor, you are the salt of the earth. So you can go to your non-Christian friend this week and say, you are welcome. Because of me, the world is a better place. Because of me, God is sparing the world from total destruction. You're welcome. Before you do that, however, I should probably tell you that one commentator points out that there are at least 11 different possible meanings of this metaphor, salt of the earth, given the usage of salt in the Old Testament and in extra-biblical literature of the day, there's at least 11 different possibilities, which probably means that Jesus doesn't want us to center our attention too much on any one individual, but to take the, take the metaphor more broadly. Um, the metaphor in that sense remains perhaps a bit vague for us, and so can we get in our, any help from the second one? It's clear that the second metaphor is parallel to the first, right? You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You can sense the parallelism here. And this second metaphor is much clearer, pardon the pun here, much clearer in what it means given the context in which we find it here in the Sermon on the Mount. You see, when Matthew has been, Matthew has been referring quite clearly in the first five chapters of his book to the book of Isaiah. We saw this last week in the Beatitudes. They are understood as the fruition of Isaiah 61. The great prophetic day would come when all of these realities would become true. And Jesus is saying that in his coming, the prophecies of Isaiah 61 are indeed coming to pass. Well, we find that Matthew seems to love Isaiah. In fact, right before the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 4, 15, and 16, turn back there and you'll see it, he cites from Isaiah 42. Here's what he says. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Here it is. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. He he's, has in mind Isaiah 42, and he's saying that here in the coming of Jesus, in the giving of the Sermon on the Mount, this great prophecy is coming to pass. Isaiah is telling of the great messianic hope. He's speaking about the promise of the kingdom of God breaking in on this present evil age. And when that happens, it is good news. It's like 
light beginning to shine in the darkness. You can see the imagery, right? It is hope for the world. So, yes, Jesus is in fact saying that we are good news for the world. Salt is good, right? Somebody, we were talking this week uh, with somebody who said, um, ask, they were asking Dr. Kebe and Daryl about salt and salt intake and high blood pressure and all that. And I said, I've been taking high blood pressure pills for a long time so I can eat salt. Yes? Salt is good. Light is good. Light is good. But when we take these two metaphors and put them together, we see something a little more striking. Salt and light overlap as metaphors in one particular place in the Bible, namely the establishment of a covenant. You can read about this in particular in Numbers 18, verse 19. Salt is regularly used when a covenant was being formed, when a covenant was being made. And Numbers 18, 19 speaks of salt representing the enduring quality of the covenant. Uh, Salt is given, in the words of Numbers 18, 19, as a perpetual due signifying the fact that the covenant is meant to last forever. And Isaiah 42, if you go back just to the verse before the one that Matthew cites in Matthew chapter 4, he's citing from Isaiah 42.7. If you go back to Isaiah 42.6, what do you see? Isaiah 42.6 speaks of God promising to give to the world his servant to be a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. So salt of the earth, light of the world, in particular, come together to signify the arrival of a new covenant, a covenant that's meant to last forever, that God promises will last forever, bringing hope, bringing tastiness, bringing good news into a world desperately in need of it. And so what Jesus is saying here about his church, about his people, is that his people are meant to signify to the world the arrival of the long-awaited day, the promise when God said, in the terms of the Old Testament prophets, a new covenant would come, a covenant that would be unbreakable, A covenant that will last forever. It is the climax of the Bible's great redemptive story. And Jesus is saying his people, his church, are meant to be the signs that that covenant has indeed been made. By the way, even more bold than that, even more bold than saying that we are the signs of God's new covenant reality, in Isaiah, the dawning of light the breaking in of light in the darkness. We know this, by the way, every year during Advent when we start lighting candles. We know what this means. It doesn't just mean that God is doing a new thing. It means that God himself is here. God himself is present. God himself has come back into his temple. 
God himself is living among his people. Light in Isaiah means the presence of God and his presence in particular to save, to rescue, and to deliver. So Jesus, in saying that we are, his church is the light of the world, the salt of the earth, is not only saying that we are meant to be participants, signs of, his, of this redemptive work. He is saying, are you ready for this? He is saying that we are even meant to be representatives of his presence. We are meant to signify not only that God's new covenant has come, but that God himself has come. That God himself is near. So yes, these are powerful metaphors indeed. But then let's look next at the truthfulness of the metaphors. It's one thing to say that the church is the salt of the earth, that the church is the light of the world, but what makes that true? How can Jesus say that this is who his people are? What makes the metaphors have validity? When you step back for a minute, you have to say that these are actually quite shocking metaphors for us, for God's people, for his church. With the meaning of the metaphors clearly in mind, you have to wonder what might we think if someone other than Jesus had said this about us or anyone else for that matter. It actually sounds blasphemous. Uh, it's a claim about Christians that we probably shouldn't make or wouldn't think we should make. If I ask you, who is the light of the world? You would say, Jesus is. <laughs> and you would be right. And you see, I know you're already jumping ahead. You would be right because Jesus says that quite plainly. John 8, verse 12. I am the light of the world, Jesus says. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He says it again a chapter later, chapter two later in John. I am the light of the world. So who is the light of the world? Don't be, blasphem don't be a blasphemous person. Say it. Jesus is. <laughs> who is the light of the world? Jesus is. And then we hear here the words of Jesus himself saying, wait a minute. You are the light of the world. Now, why does he say this? How can he say it? What makes it true? Three observations here. First, Jesus was no, he wasn't the first, <laughs> he wasn't the first postmodern <laughs> to arrive on the scene, right? He's not coddling our inner self, the little deity within inside of you, and saying, now just look at you, precious person. You are the light of the world. Now, Jesus is speaking not about something that he sees in us inherently, but something he sees in us prophetically. Here's what I mean. Uh, in Daniel chapter 5, you remember the story. Daniel is brought in in a hurry to King Belshazzar because this mysterious writing on the wall has appeared. You remember that story in Daniel 5? So why is Daniel brought in? Here's what Belshazzar says, Daniel 5, verse 14. I have heard of you, 
that the spirit of the gods is in you. And that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Do you hear what he says? Light means divine insight. I'm bringing you in because light is found in you. You have an insight, a wisdom, a, a take on things that no one else would be able to see. Uh, and the reason that you have this insight, the reason you're able to see what is not otherwise possible for human beings to see, King Belshazzar tells us, is because the spirit of the gods is in you. Now, he's a pagan king, of course, but he's not far off the mark, is he? Daniel himself makes it plain throughout the book of Daniel, that the insight he has, the wisdom he has, is not because it's something he's been born with. It's something that has been granted to him. It's because he has, yes, the Spirit of God within him. And the coming of the new covenant, the promise of the new covenant that the the prophets had said would come, would be a day in which what would happen? I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Yes? From the least to the greatest, the spirit of God will dwell in them. So why can Jesus say, we are the light of the world? Because he's speaking prophetically. He's speaking of the promise of the Holy Spirit that will come at Pentecost in its fullness. In Acts chapter 2, the day in which from the least to the greatest, all God's people will be marked by the presence of the Spirit of God. Now, do you know that's true of you, Christian? Do you know that because the promise of the new covenant has dawned in Jesus, that if you are a believer in Christ, you possess the Spirit of God within you? That is is what, and that only, is what makes you the light of the world. But the presence of God's own Holy Spirit within his people also produces in them a distinctive quality about which, uh, without which the metaphors also would not be true. Jesus here, I think, points this out when he says, just imagine what would happen if salt were in some hypothetical way, to lose its taste, lose its saltiness? What would happen if a light were hidden under a basket? The ideas here are meant to be preposterous. You can't re-salt salt. And no one goes and buys a lamp, puts a light bulb in it, turns it on, and then promptly hides it, right? The ideas are ridiculous, and that's the point. If we claim to be Christians, which means that we have the presence of God himself within us, then we cannot keep ourselves isolated from the world that Jesus himself came to save. What good are we if we are hidden? What good are we if we are not salty? We aren't. Hasty. At the same time, we must not lose the distinctive quality that we've been given as his disciples for the world he came to save. So, 
what good are we for the world if we are spiritual but not religious? If what we mean is that we possess some sort of inner peace that gives us some help from our day, what good is that for others who don't find the same help? Jesus did not come to merely give you an inner peace and leave the world unaffected. He didn't come just to save you into some afterlife. He came to change the world. What good are we for the world if we are nice people but never bold? If we have good news to share but we keep our mouths shut? What good are we for the world if we are bold but defiant? If the good news we share sounds more like we are trying to protect our power or build our brand rather than simply being beggars who have come eager to share food with others who are hungry. What good are we for the world if when we suffer loss, we grieve just like everyone else who have no hope? There has to be something distinct about us as followers of Jesus or the metaphors lose their meaning. They lose their truthfulness. They lose their validity. They lose their power and are good for nothing. So what is the distinctive quality? It is something that we have only because we are worshipers of Jesus. It is something distinct about us only as his life begins to take shape in us by the power of that Holy Spirit that has been giving to us. It's amazing, isn't it, when you step back and think about it. For 2,000 years, Christians, believing that Jesus is the light of the world, have done pretty much something like what we're doing today. Gathering together on the first day of the week in commemoration of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Singing together. Praying together reading the scripture together, hearing the scripture proclaimed over them together, assembled in a space, sitting next to each other, smiling, rejoicing, crying, sharing burdens. For 2,000 years, Christians have worshiped Jesus just like this, and in so doing, have begun to find his cross-shaped life being impressed on theirs. A distinctive quality that has made all the difference. There's one other thing that Jesus says here that is critical to these metaphors being true. In verse 14, Jesus speaks of his people not as individual lights. He uses the metaphor of a, of, a, of a lamp. But then commentators will point this out. It's almost like it breaks the, the flow here. He throws in this one other thing in verse 14. And he speaks of us not as just individual lights, but as a collective light, a, a city set on a hill. It's a bit unexpected, but it marks out a key point that I think Jesus wants to impress upon us. The light that impacts the darkness is a collective light of the Christian community, not isolated lights. You've 
Maybe some of you have flown into Oklahoma City at night. You know, you know you're getting close when finally you start to see more lights, right? You know that impression you have? Well, that's what Jesus is saying here. He's speaking of the corporate effect of the church. That's why I say that these are metaphors of the church, not just metaphors of Christians. It's metaphors of us together. It's not the solitary lamps of individual Christians that change the world, but the collective light of the people of God. He's speaking, in other words, of what we here at Crosstown call a credible gospel community. A city set on a hill. You want to be what Jesus expects you to be as a disciple? You want to participate in the reality of his kingdom that has broken in on this present darkness, giving hope to a world desperately in need of it? Then you have to be in community with his people. You have to be. It's a call, yes, to corporate worship. I'm glad you're here. It's a call to corporate worship, and yes, that means the first part of the service, too, when we sing. Should be here for that. Amen. Might getting a little close to home? I don't know. It's not optional. Like, for, for us to be shaped as cross-shaped people, we've got to have his songs in our hearts. We've got to sing. I sit right here, and I love hearing the people right behind me singing. I try to out-sing them. Don't try to out-sing Pastor Jod. You'll lose your voice real fast. But this matters. This matters. Listen, church. It also means we have to gather together in our homes. It means we have to be a credible gospel community. We have to be in each other's lives. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. You can hide a lamp. You can't hide the city. Now lastly, in verse 16, this last verse here takes us beyond the meaning and the truthfulness of the metaphor to see the intended effect. If we are the salt of the earth, if we are the light of the world, what should we expect? And what is it we're supposed to do in order to have that intended effect as salt and light? So verse 16, using the metaphor of the light, tells us what to do, how we should shine this light. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. The shining of the light is the showing of our good works. You have a problem with that? Amen. I hope not. I hope you're with Jackie. I hope you're saying that so be it. Yes, that's true. The shining of the light is the showing, the doing of good deeds. Full stop. We Christians are called to do good deeds and to do them in public. 
The church is expected to be known for its good deeds. Okay, I'll just keep on preaching here. Um, What kind of good works? I suppose that we could think of all sorts of things that might qualify here. And that would be great, but in the context, most likely what is in view are two things. First, the virtues that are commended to us in the Beatitudes, what comes before, verse 16, but also the very specific ways of living that Jesus is about to expound to us in not only the rest of chapter 5, but the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Are you ready for them? See, we're slowing down here before we're about to pick up speed in a couple weeks in our study of the Sermon on the Mount because we've got to get this foundation straight in order to understand, in order to apply the rest of the passage. Because what we're about to see, the Sermon on the Mount is about to get really practical. It's about to get into the very real realities of your life. I'm talking about Jesus is about to tell us how we're supposed to live in issues like anger, sexuality, marriage, oaths, revenge, retaliation, loving your enemies. There's going to be plenty of direction here given to us, like specifics. If you're a Christian, you must do this. And so you better understand why he's telling you that. You're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. You see, as we've already observed, as we began this study together, we Christians are, we've become really good (laughs) at evading this kind of direct command from our Lord. We are so afraid of a legalistic works righteousness that we tend to downplay the straightforward command that is given to us in Matthew 5.16. Do good deeds. Live this way. But You can't just do that so easily. It's not going to be like, okay, I can't wait for this sermon to be over. Get past verse 16. Let's move on. Let's just get theological and not be so practical. It's not going to be that easy. You know why? Because about 30 times in the New Testament, we find the call to good works, to good deeds. So you're going to have to just avoid a lot of the Bible if you're going to get around this. We like to quote, for example, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, don't we? It is by grace that we are saved through faith. It's not of our own doing. And then we forget what comes next. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? There it is. Can you put that straight? Can you hold on to that? 1 Peter 2.12 says pretty much the same thing that you find in Matthew 5.16. Most commentators, Terry's will tell you that that's because they're based on the same Jesus 
teaching, same Jesus tradition. Here's what 1 Peter 2.12 says. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, among the unbelievers, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. So this is pretty practical. What do you do when you're living in the world among the unbelievers? Make sure you are honorable in your conduct so that even if you are ridiculed, despised, even if they speak of you like evildoers, they will have their mouths shut because of the good works that fill your life. We have got to keep in mind the significance of Jesus in the entire biblical story if we're going to be Christians. Jesus is the true light that came into the world, John 1, 9. It is only because of our union with him that we can be called, likewise, the light of the world. So what about our good works? They can only be so-called good insofar as they come out of our union with him, our faith in him. That's what makes them good. The good works called for here are the result of a genuine faith in Christ and an intentional effort to be his disciple. And this is important because often the good works that are called for, the effectiveness of our light shining in the world, are not immediately recognized as good works by the world. Just look back again at the Beatitudes. I want you to notice this. I want you to see this. The last of the Beatitudes, number nine, it comes to us in verse 11, stands out from the rest. Even in English, you're going to see it. Take a look at it. We see that in the way that verse 11 stands out from all the other Beatitudes, it connects us quite clearly to the two metaphors in verses 13 to 16. Do you notice it? You see, verse 11 begins, blessed are you. How do all the other Beatitudes begin? Blessed are, essentially, blessed are they, third person. But verse 11, all of a sudden, blessed are you, second person. And commentators will point out, this is deliberate so that, by, probably by Matthew, by the way, deliberate so that you don't disconnect verses 13 to 16 from what just came before. The two metaphors in verses 13 and 14 also begin with the second person and do so emphatically in Greek. You, the you of verse 11, are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. So reading the metaphors at least, at the very least, you can see this in English, make the connection, reading them together at least with verse 11 gives us this, blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely, key word by the way, on my account. It is precisely when Christians suffer. 
when Christians lose power, when Christians are put down, when Christians are oppressed, it is precisely in that moment, not when they suffer as an evildoer, mind you, but for doing good, that is when the light of Christ shines the brightest. It's a lot like our Savior. We have the greatest effect on the world when our life begins to be cross-shaped. When the words we say are like Jesus on the cross, Father, forgive them. That's when the light shines the brightest. To do those kinds of good deeds will not be easy. You're just going to go home and say, okay, I'm just going to be a good person today. I can promise you, you probably, that pretty soon, that resolution is going to fall hard. But you commune with Christ, you worship Jesus, you come back day by day to the one who is drawn to you and your brokenness, and slowly but surely, what begins to be shaped in you is something that looks like a cross. Something that allows you to be reviled and you don't revile back. Something that allows you to have your place ripped from you, taken from you unfairly. And you rejoice. But notice one other thing here before we close. The reason why we are to let our light shine, the motive for doing good deeds in the world, it's pretty clear. Let your light shine, do good deeds, so that what? So that the world will give glory to the Father. Now, this is an important point because some of you familiar with the Sermon on the Mount will already know that in Matthew 6, 1, Jesus will say what looks like the exact opposite of Matthew 5, 16. He warns against practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. But here in Matthew 5, 16, he says, do your good works in front of everybody to be seen by them. So which is it? Let's make it plain. Christians are supposed to live out loud their faith in Jesus. To be a Christian is not to be spiritual, not religious, if that's what you mean by, I've got this private personal faith I just keep to myself. That's not Christianity. You're not the salt of the earth. You're not the light of the world. If you're doing that, if that's your view of what Christianity is. Martin Luther wrote about this text that salt cannot salt itself. You ever think about that? You don't taste salt and say, what does it need? A little more salt. The whole purpose, <laughs> that's what it calls for. Its entire purpose, the whole purpose of salt is external. The whole purpose of salt is for something else. So it is with us. What we are, we are for the world and not for ourselves. But in order for us to be for the world, we have to be Christian. We have to be cross-shaped 
in our good works. And this will require a wisdom not only to discern the behaviors that we need to carry out in any given situation, but just as critically, the attitudes and motivations that lie behind those behaviors. Because the goal of the good works is not so that people praise us. It's so that people see the reign of God on earth as it is in heaven. We are to live, one commentary says, transparent lives, making the heavenly manifest in the earthly. Even in the ordinary things, your call as a disciple is to bring light so that the heavenly reality begins to shine in the very ordinary things of life. I doubt that faithful Christians, reading the Sermon on the Mount, reading these metaphors, always know that this is the effect they are having on the world. Probably not. They're going about their their days just like you, feeling stressed, feeling pressure, feeling pulled in different directions, but with a psalm that they read that morning somehow in there doing its work. The Lord's Prayer that they prayed, maybe just in the car driving to work, trying to get the, trying to get the coffee in just to make it through another day. But when the, when the heart is stirred with affection for God, good works are done out of love with no ulterior motive. When good works, or, sorry, when the heart is stirred with affection for God, good works come out of love rather than some other motive. No selfish ambition. No sacrifice that is just there to demand recompense for all the effort that has been made. No, no. Purely out of love. The reward has already been received. The good works that are effective in the world are the ones that flow out of that reward. An overflowing of generosity to a world that's needing it. Have you been given those riches? Do you know Christ? Then let your light shine so that the world can be enriched by the love of the Father and come to enjoy his love for themselves. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask you now boldly that you would make this command of our Lord Jesus true in our lives. Before we just say, okay, let's go do the good works, let us come and commune. Let us come and sit at the table long enough that we find our hearts overflowing with love for what our God has done for us in Jesus. That will be enough, Lord, Grant that to us today and then send us out into the ordinary duties of our lives and make it true 
We are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world because of the spirit of God given to us. And we pray that through our lives, saturated with the love of God in Christ, others will come to see this same love. Would you answer our prayer, Lord? We ask it boldly in the name of Jesus. Amen.